And if you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that would be page 1. Very convenient this morning. Today we begin a new journey through a new book. Uh, We're going to be studying through the book of Genesis uh, here in these, uh, well, I don't know how many Sundays it's going to be, but uh, it'll it'll be a lot. Uh, But we're looking forward to jumping through this wonderful book. Uh, We are going to just take a look at verse 1, but today I'm going to be giving an overview of the book as a whole. So listen carefully, because this is God's word that is for you. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you so much for bringing us this word today. I ask that you would help us to be focused, to hear, and most importantly, to believe, and to trust in you and what we read and hear today. May what I say bring you glory and honor. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis isn't just the introduction to the first five books of the Old Testament, commonly called the Pentateuch, or the first five books written by Moses. Genesis isn't just the introduction to that. Genesis is not just the introduction to the Bible itself, both Old and New Testament, though it is. Genesis is the introduction to everything. Our whole lives, everything that we think, all of our ideas about how the world works, how our life works, what we're supposed to do with it, all find their introduction in Genesis because Genesis is the introduction to everything. This book is written in a really wonderful way. Because this, as the introduction to everything, is our introduction to God. Now, this book could have been written in the way that our theological textbooks are written. Fact one, fact two, every sentence giving you some sort of one-line takeaway for what you need to know about God. God is powerful. God is faithful. God is this. God is that. It could have been written that way, but it wasn't. Instead, the way that this book was written is in some way I like to think of it in this first section of Genesis, Genesis 1 through, 1 through 11, we get God's resume. What is it that God has done? Well, I started out by I created everything that you know of. All the things that you see are things that exist purely because I desired them to. And then as we go along in the rest of Genesis and the following chapters, basically chapters 12 on through the end of the book, is our face-to-face interview with God. If you've ever had a job interview, usually what will happen is the interviewer will say, can you describe to me a time in your previous job or in your previous employment where you encountered such and such situation? How did you react to that? What they're looking for is for you to tell them a story, a narrative of how it is that you have interacted with this workplace problem or this challenge. And I think that's what we see in the rest of the book. In chapters 1 through 11, we get to see the power of God in his way that he creates 
way that he preserves, and the way that he judges the world. But then we'll see through the remaining three characters that Genesis talks through, namely Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, we'll see how does God work with different people, often challenging people, as we'll see. So as we begin today, as we look over the book as a whole, we're going to take a look at two points, which you can see in your outline. The first is that God is powerful. God is very powerful. And then the second point is that God is faithful. That's what we're going to see ringing through all the rest of Genesis, is that God is powerful. Here in chapter 1, as you all are very well familiar with, I'm sure, that we find that God has created the place. But that's not really what is the most striking thing about Genesis chapter 1. As many people will point out, what is striking about Genesis chapter 1 is not the fact that a God made the place, but that only one God created the place. In ancient cultures, it would have been a polytheistic one, where there was a God for everything, a God of corn, a God of trees, a God of the sky, and it was important in that culture to make sure that you could appease all these various people and all these various beings so this way you can live your life. If you made the tree God angry, well, now guess who's not getting any apples this year? Or if you were not going to be able to keep the river gods happy, well, now your village is going to flood. And it was trying to figure out all these different wills, often mutually exclusive, to try to make your life make sense. And here what Moses is telling you is that there are no other gods. There is only one. He's the one that rules over everything and is powerful. But then we move on, and when we get to chapter 2, we find out that God is very personal in chapter 2. That he is willing to make promises to his creatures and to bind himself to these very insignificant people. This is something that has become even more astonishing to us as we find out how big our universe is. We send out probes that will go on for as near as we can tell an infinite amount of time. And there's still more space and stars to be discovered. We know actually very little about how big our world is, and that helps us to see ourselves as extremely small. The closest star that we have is our sun, which is 93 million miles away. I believe the next closest one is 25 trillion miles away. It's a big universe. Yet God is willing to pay attention to one small section of it, and one small creature on top of this small little planet, and is willing to make promises to them in Genesis chapter 2. We find here that God has, is, a great, is not only powerful and is personal, but he's a provider. As he sets these people in the midst of a garden, gives them everything they could possibly need. But yet in Genesis chapter 3, we find out that these people violate God's commands. He gives them everything and tells them to avoid one thing. They will not be persuaded, and they doom the rest of the world. This is something that I can imagine, as we must remember the entire time we're looking at this book, who is the original audience? The original audience of this is a freshly freed group of people from four centuries of slavery. And they're finding out who their God is. And I can imagine in the first two chapters, they were probably wondering, well, why have we been in slavery all this time? 
Here we have a God who is powerful, who has made promises to us. Why is it that our life is so terrible for the last 400 years? And we find out in Genesis chapter 3, oh, sin has entered into the world and has doomed all of these relationships. But even in that, in Genesis 3, we find the first promise that God is going to set all things right. That's a promise that we're going to see fulfilled in different ways throughout this book, the rest of the Old Testament, but will ultimately be fulfilled in the New Testament. But we'll all get there when we get there. As we go on through the rest of the early parts of this book in Genesis 4 through 6, we find that humanity gets corrupted very quickly. At first, human beings were made perfect, holy, righteous, capable of error, but not necessarily so. Now, as we get on to Genesis chapter 6, in just a few generations, we find that humanity has descended to the point where they can only do evil. In fact, all the thoughts and intents of their hearts are only evil continually. We went from Cain murdering his brother because... He was more successful in worship than he was. All the way down to those who would say that they would strike and they would kill a man for looking at him wrong. As one podcast had put it, the first gangster rap of the Bible. So what's a God to do? If we were to cut off Genesis at this point, we might assume that sin is more powerful than God is. Here, his whole creation seems to have spiraled out of control right underneath his watch. What is he supposed to do? We see that he's been an extremely gracious God in the first couple of chapters. And now this craziness has gone on for hundreds of years. We might think, well, maybe God's not just so gracious as he is just kind of a pushover. Maybe he's not able to deal with evil in this world. But then we get to Genesis 6 through 9. And we find out, oh yes, God is actually quite capable of dealing with sin in his world. And it's actually rather terrifying when he does. In fact, in Hebrews 10.31, it talks about that the Lord, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the floodwaters come and there is no depth that you can run to in which God's waters aren't there or height that you can flee to where God's waters aren't there. Because it covers the entire earth. We get a little too used to that, by the way. We'll put pictures of Noah's flood up on our nursery room walls. Because we have caricatured that story into it's about the cute animals. The giraffe's neck is too long to fit in the boat, so it sticks out over the side. And we've made it into a cartoon. But this is actually very terrifying. Like, all but one family, men, women, and children, are drowned. All of Earth's creatures, except for those that he has put into the ark, are killed over sin. That has been going on for a long time. That should bring us some sobriety, because God hasn't changed. But he does give us this. That's what we find in chapter 9. When the floodwaters subside, God then makes a promise. Again, we see this in Genesis 3, here again in chapter 9. God makes a promise that he's never going to flood the earth again and puts a rainbow up in the sky, a visible sign of a promise 
We'll see that more and more in the Bible as we go along. And promises blessing to Noah. This is going to be something we're going to see a lot. God making promises, and specifically, as one of my old professors points out, promises of blessing to his people. This is going to show up in chapters 2, 3, 9, 12, 15, and 17. And then those promises are going to be either alluded to or expanded on in chapters 26, 35, 37, and 49. You see the picture here? God is making promises over and over again, assuring his people of his work. And this is what he will do. But unfortunately, we'll find out in Genesis chapter 9. As one of my other professors pointed out, you'll hear from a lot of professors over the course of this uh, series. But it pointed out that sin didn't die in the flood. And that it lives on, even in Noah. That's one of the first things that he does after the command to fill the earth and multiply, restarting over what Adam and Eve failed on. He grows grapes to make wine to get himself drunk and acts lewdly. Things aren't off to a good start, it seems, if all we're going to trust in is humanity. But God continues to be faithful. And his, Noah's descendants, spread. And then we get to the Tower of Babel. And here God's people are once again disobedient. He's told them to spread out, go forth and multiply. And instead they congregate and try to build a tower to their own name. Someone pointed out, notice that they, one, and it's, it's a little thing that we might pass on. But as they build this tower, they not only make brick for stone, but they use butamen for mortar. Butamen is waterproof. So here what they're trying to do is they say, ha! We're going to build a tower, and we're going to defend against the only judgment trick that we know that you have. We know you can flood a planet, so we'll make a tower that's not floodable. Ha! What are you going to do with that? Well, it turns out that God can just reach into everybody's mind and adjust the language settings on the inside, like our phones. One moment everyone was speaking the same thing, and now all of a sudden, now we need Google Translate. Notice also it says God has to come down and see what they're doing. The tower doesn't reach up to heaven, nor are they able to hide from God's power. God's not a one-trick pony. He's not just a God of the water. He can reach into one's minds and change things. Useful for us to remember later. This concludes in this chapters 1 through 11 is the first of four sections I'm dividing this up into. This first section answers the question, who is the king of glory? Who is God? We see in chapters 1 through 11. He's powerful, he's personal, he's a provider, but he will by no means clear the guilty. That's what we see in chapters 1 through 11. But then as we go along, we're going to see three other characters. Now, there's a lot more than three, but there's going to be three that Genesis devotes most of its attention to. And this is where we're going to see our second point in that God is faithful to his people. And you'll notice as we go along, as many others have pointed out, that we're very focused on this lineage. God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that there would be a seed, an offspring, singular by the way, that is going to come from the woman, Eve. 
And it's going to be this line that we're going to trace. So all of those begats that our eyes usually glaze over as we read through, those are actually very important. It turns out that these are hinge points in Genesis. When you see a begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, it's like the opening to those Star Wars movie crawls where you see all the text going by. It's letting you know you're in a new episode. There's something you need to be paying attention to. These are going to be the characters that were important, and this is going to be the characters that are going to be important. So we need to pay attention to those as we go through. And as we'll see at the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, we're going to be focusing on one person in particular. We all know him as Abraham, but he's known as Abram when we first meet him. His story goes on from chapters 12 through 26. And I've titled this section that God is faithful to the scared. Now you might say it's like, scared? I'm not sure how that defines Abraham. In chapter 12, God tells him to go into a land he hasn't heard of to go have children that he biologically shouldn't be capable of having that are going to become nations that don't exist yet. And he just goes. How is that scared? Well, it's true. Abraham is actually a very complicated figure capable of some astonishing feats of faith, and yet equally astonishing failures of faith. He's willing to go to battle at 80 years old to rescue his nephew from five different kings. And then after that, he's going to go into Egypt, and because his wife looks pretty, he makes her lie about his status with him so that he isn't killed. Puts her in danger. At least Abraham's safe. It's a very complicated figure. God makes promises to him that he is going to have a son with his nearly 100-year-old wife. And after 20 years or so, he gets really nervous about all of that and decides, well, he's going to make this promise happen itself, which is a failure. Yet God's faithful to him. Even sometimes through these failures, he will advance his purposes. That God is faithful to the scared. Yet he continues to make this promise in Genesis chapter 12. Promises him land, promises him a seed, and promises him blessing. We're going to see those three things come up over and over and over again as they're passed down through this line, this hope for this seed. And then when we get to chapter 27... We get to Jacob, his grandson, who is extremely complicated. In fact, if you didn't know the story, you would probably assume that Jacob's the bad guy. In our American media, in our movies, we try to make who is the hero and who is the villain extremely clear. When Darth Vader walks onto the screen the first time, It's a big white backdrop against this black triangular figure with scary music that starts up. It's very clear who the villain is. You didn't have to be told that was the bad guy. You could just see that this was the case. And if we're going to look at Jacob, honestly, we would expect the scary music. Even down to his name. Ya'akob, Jacob, is very similar to Akab, which means deceiver. which shows that God likes puns. So when I use them, it's divine humor, people. 
And here we're going to follow the story of Jacob, who lies and cheats and steals most of the way through his life to his family. He tricks his brother out of a birthright. He deceives his old blind father through multiple lies, then goes out and deceives Laban, his uncle, then ends up somehow with four wives and a bunch of sheep and lambs with family dynamics that would rival the Kardashians. It's the life of Jacob. All in contrast to Esau, who at least from a hunter-gatherer culture, Esau should be the good guy. He's strong, he hunts, he's clearly devoted to his family, clearly loves his father. All these traits would be admired, as opposed to Jacob, this beardless, hairless suit maker. Second born, yet that's the one God chooses. Why? I don't know either, but I'm glad he chooses sinners, aren't you? I have called this section that God is faithful to the scoundrel. Because if anything could define Jacob, it would seem to be that. Now, as we go through his story, we'll see that Jacob goes through quite a bit of transformation as we go along. But you certainly wouldn't pick him out as the one like, oh, yeah, that's the patriarch. That's going to be the one that's going to bring God's blessings to the world. It's a big surprise. And then we get down to Joseph. One of Jacob's sons. And this is going to take up Genesis 37 down through the end of the book, chapter 50. And here, Joseph is going to be the one to dominate the rest of the book. So you might assume that the blessing is going to come through him. We spend almost the last third of the book with Joseph. And finally, we have a righteous person. I mean, he might be, might lack a little discretion here in his youth, telling his family who clearly doesn't like him about all of his dreams about how they'll one day bow to him. So you can can ding a couple points for discretion. But other than that, Joseph seems basically sinless as we go through the rest of his life. He's obedient to his father to go out and check on his brothers. And for his trouble, he gets thrown into a well and sold into slavery. And he makes the best of it. And is a good slave to his master, who unfortunately he gets unwanted attention from the mistress of the house. And though he remains honorable for that, for his trouble, he gets thrown into prison. And he makes the best of that, becomes a trustee of the prison, helps out some other prisoners who promise to help him. And then they forget about him for a couple years. The first half of his story is nothing but suffering even though it doesn't seem like Joseph has done anything to deserve it. And yet God is faithful to him too. Exalts him up from the prison all the way to second in command, where he goes on to save the world from famine, quite literally, with the help of God's warnings and wisdom. Now, if Genesis was where the Bible ended, we might assume, ha, Joseph Finally, the one who's going to set all things right. He's going to provide food. All the world comes together. Roll credits. This has to be the one. It turns out, no, it's actually not Joseph. 
He's actually not the one the promise is going to go through. You know who's going to have the promise go through him? It's going to be Judah, who had relations with his own daughter-in-law because he only thought she was a prostitute. That guy is going to be the one the promise is going to go through. What a twist ending. But that's where it ends. In Genesis. A very convoluted journey of God's faithfulness to extremely unfaithful people. And that's going to carry on through the rest of the Bible. It's the introduction to everything, and it's going to be the introduction to the rest of Scripture. It closes with the death of Joseph, and then Moses is going to pick up in the book of Exodus, which at the time was current events for the people. There's so much that we're going to see in this book, other than the fact that God is powerful and God is faithful. We're going to see how covenants work. This is extremely important to understanding the structure of the rest of the Bible and how God operates to his people. We're going to see other things like where government comes from. Where does marriage come from? Where does gender come from? God's designs for sexuality and the very first preachings of the gospel. All of those things are going to be, and many more, are going to be found in this book of Genesis. This is something that is well worth our study. But we're not just going to stay in Genesis. This is all going to have an impact in how we see the New Testament as well. And how Jesus viewed Genesis. When he was talking about marriage, he goes back to Genesis. When we, the scripture that we read today out of the New Testament, John chapter 1, goes all the way back to the beginning. That that's where Jesus was in making all things. All of what we're going to read in Genesis is going to have overflow into what we read in the New Testament. And that the God of Genesis is the God of John. And keeping both of those things in mind. God is able and capable of frightening judgment, of drowning the entire world. But yet he is also capable of some surprising mercy. And that he was willing to spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for ten people. This is a gracious, blessing God that we're going to be introduced to here in Genesis. And as we go along, we will see all of those things in the person of Jesus. We'll see Jesus was quite powerful as well. We'll see that Jesus was faithful to his people and to his promises that he's made. And of course, faithful to the end, the ultimate promise that we saw in Genesis chapter 3. Yes, sin has destroyed the world. And you can't drown sin in a flood, but you can kill it on a cross. And that's where Jesus takes it. All of our sin that we have done, we don't just get to blame Adam and Eve. We have a fair amount of sin on our own that has destroyed our own worlds. And Jesus promises that he can take it from us. Forgive us for it. Goes to the grave, takes on even death itself, and then is victorious and raised to life. But Genesis doesn't even stop there. 
In fact, we're going to see two trees. We are always, when we think about the tree in the Garden of Eden, we think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there was another tree that was there. The tree of eternal life. Adam and Eve were barred from taking from that tree. But we see that tree show up again at the very end of Revelation. When that tree of eternal life is opened up to everyone. All those who have come to Jesus, have taken up that free offer of the gospel, have the opportunity to eat of the tree of life and live forever with God. It comes full circle. We won't be able to appreciate Revelation until we understand Genesis. So I hope you'll join me as we take this journey together. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we do thank you for this wonderful book of Genesis. Help us to see all of the beautiful things that are entailed in it. Comfort our hearts with the incredible promises that you have written for us in this book. And help us in our appreciation of these promises to tremble at your judgments. To remember that you don't owe us anything, but that we owe you everything. But help us to do just that, to love and serve you. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.